0: Welcome to Brain and the Vat. We are delighted to be rejoined by Raja Hawani, one of our favorite guests. We've done a number of fantastic episodes on love and sex over the years. And we're going to be talking about the right to sex. Raja, would you like to start with a thought experiment? So imagine a
1: case in which someone has a serious physical handicap, which is visible, and which, say, confines the person to being under care 24-7, either in hospital or at home or something like that. And so this person has physical difficulty having sexual activity with other people. They might even have physical difficulty masturbating on their own, depending on their physical condition, right? And imagine now somebody arguing on behalf of this person that, well, we consider sexual pleasure and sexual activity to be important things in life, right? So maybe this person who has had very few, if any, opportunities to have sexual activity with anyone, maybe that person has some sort of right to such sexual activity. And so once you have this case in place, basically, someone can offer variations on the case. So somebody, for example, can say, even if the person doesn't have a disability that actually prevents them from engaging in sex, they might have some other sort of social disability that makes them undesirable by conventional standards. So for example, the person could be incredibly short, very short, like a little person, for example, or the person can be so tall that people just don't find that kind of height attractive. Or the person can be morbidly skinny or hyper-obese, for example, and other traits traits that people usually in society don't find to be very attractive. And so somebody can make the case, well, if this person spent most of their life not having willing sexual partners to have sex with them without having to pay those sexual partners, maybe that person has a right to sex, right? And then you can even add a third variation on the case. I'm not going to elongate it much better, but imagine a person, let's randomly... Call him Jason, right? Imagine a person who has just an obnoxious character. Basically, nobody, no, nobody wants. You know, Jason. How I like to use you in my examples. Right? Imagine if this person called Jason. He's at a bar and he starts a conversation with a woman. And the woman, after two minutes, she's like, "Just get away from me! I don't even. I want to erase this from my memory." Right? So, Jason, even though he's physically attractive, or at least considered physically attractive by conventional standards. Just has a hard time. The minute he opens his mouth, he just puts off everybody basically. So imagine that kind of case and somebody could also make the case. Well, given how important sex and sexual activity are to our lives, perhaps our Jason, our dearly beloved Jason also has some sort of a right to sex. So these are the kind of cases that are used often as, as we say in philosophy, intuition pumps to get people to consider the idea of whether there's such a thing as a right to sex. So I'll stop there. And then hopefully during the during your questions, more and more clarifications
2: and arguments can come up. So Raja, you are absolutely right that I am dreadful at picking up women at bars, which has never succeeded. So if the question is, do I then have a right to sex? If the answer is yes, does that mean that any of those women, any one or all of them have to say yes to me? If it's one, then which one? So... that sounds like a strange question to answer, right? So if I have the right to sex, does that mean I have the right to have sex once in my life, many times in my life, a certain number of times? How do we judge that? These seem like very difficult questions to answer for the person who's arguing in favor of the view.
1: Yeah, I mean, these are nice questions. And of course, they go to the heart of the issues. So some of the issues. So let me begin by saying a couple of things. So when somebody says the right to sex, obviously we can think of rights like, in general, we can think of them as negative rights. And usually negative rights are rights to be left alone, to pursue your pursuits and your tastes as you see fit within moral constraints, like especially getting the consent, the informed and valid consent of others. So clearly the discussion of the right to sex is not about that. Although some philosophers in their essays on the topic have devoted some space to discussing negative rights to sex. But really, that, I mean, the contentious issue is what we would call the positive right to sex because positive rights to sex are rights that entitle someone to something from someone else. So basically they're not just simply rights to be left alone to do what they need to do, but they are rights for someone. So this is where your questions basically come in, right? And you also ask two different questions, I think. One question is to whom, so if somebody has a right to sex in this respect, that means that there's going to have to be a party on whom the obligation falls to engage in the sexual activity with that person. So one question is, Who is the person who's going to have an obligation to meet those sexual needs? And the other question that you ask is the frequency with which this right can be asserted. And so, of course, these have different issues. So let me put it this way. So somebody who wants to defend such rights to sex might do so by making an analogy with other basic rights that we have. So somebody, for instance, can say something like, well, look, human beings, in order for them to lead decent lives, need to have some sort of access to, to shelter some sort of access to nutrition, to food and water, basically. And so if sex is a component of a decent life, then we can see why such a person would have to have access to that sexual activity, right? However, that person can go on to say, unlike food and shelter and water, the necessity for sex is not constant. We may feel sexual desire constantly, right? But the need to meet it is not as strenuous as the need to meet hunger, for example, or to meet thirst, or to stay sheltered. I mean, you can't satisfy someone's need for shelter by saying, oh, you got to stay in the house for one hour, out you go, come back next year for another hour. That wouldn't be meeting their needs for shelter. But you could, somebody, be saying something about the needs for sex by saying, look, you get to have one hour or two hours with some person or other once every six months, or once a year even. So, so the when question can be answered along, something along those lines, basically. Of course, we're not going to have definite answers, and I think anybody who defends the right to sex is going to have to be nuanced about this and it's going to have to leave some room for people's different sexual needs. Some people might have a voluminous sexual appetite, while others might not have a voluminous sexual appetite, right? So some sort of calibration is going to have to be done to meet those needs. And again, here, maybe looking at some parallel rights might be helpful in this case, right? So that's as far as the when is concerned. Now, the who, of course, is going to be much, much more complicated. And part of the complication there, of course, arises from the fact that the phrase, the right to sex is an ambiguous phrase. We don't know what it means, actually. It could be, it could mean various different things. So I'll give you an example. But before I do that, for the benefit of your listeners, I do want to say that before people jump on me and accuse me of being an incel or anything like that, I do want to say that I do not have a position on the right to sex. I think the arguments are interesting. The position is interesting, but I myself, as a philosopher of sex, haven't yet made up my mind about a lot of these things. But anyway, so the question of the right to sex could be, and of course we're talking about positive rights, not negative rights, right? So somebody, for example, could make the argument that, look, we recognize sexual activity and sexual pleasure as being very important, but the most that's going to entitle you is that you have the right to masturbate, basically, solo masturbation. And in those cases in which you are unable to masturbate by yourself, basically, You are entitled to get some sort of help from some sort of professional who can come to your house once a week and help you. If your physical condition is so dire that you're actually unable to masturbate using your hands or your feet or whatever, if you have any, basically, then the person can come and help you masturbate. And I think the philosopher Alida Lieberman developed a a view like this. So this model would be a right to sex that models it around sort of a medical need. So this would inch towards thinking of the right to sex as some sort of a right to medical assistance in this respect. So the idea would be sex is a basic thing in our important lives. Some people are not even able to masturbate, right? So in order to get them there, they are going to need medical help because of their mental or physical condition that they are not able to get this help. So that would entitlement to. So that's fine. But then you can have other positions. You can have somebody who says, well, look, and I can't remember the name of the philosopher who made this argument, but there's a philosopher who made a very compelling case that the pleasures of sex are not all uniform, basically. And I think he's absolutely right about this. So that the sexual pleasure that you would derive from masturbating is going to be very different from the kind of sexual pleasure that you would get from actually having sex with someone else. I don't mean to say actually having sex because masturbating is a form of having sex with yourself, but it's a different sort of pleasure whatsoever. So somebody can make the argument that. Look, if you take the right to sex seriously, you can't confine those cases simply to cases of masturbation. You have to take sexual pleasure seriously enough to recognize that sexual pleasure is different kind. Right? Some are masturbatory, but others are the kind of sexual pleasures that come from coupled sex or geastic sex or however. I'm not going to talk about orgies; that's going to be too much. So then somebody might say, "Well, the right to sex is going to have to be the right to have sex with someone who is willing to do that," and then you have suggestions that it could be what is called sexual doulas, sexual therapists, right? Or sex workers, basically, what are commonly known more as sex workers. And how we distinguish between all of them, of course, is an interesting question, and there are ways to distinguish them. So that would be basically the main answer to that question. So, so I'm going to stop there. It's way more complicated than that, but I'm just going to stop there and see whether you have any follow-up questions or
0: different questions. Yeah, so let's dig down into this distinction between positive and negative rights. It seems that if you have a negative right to sex, in other words, people shouldn't stop you from having sex, then the idea that you should be free to go and pay for sex or have sex with the partners of your choice and of their choice seems uncontroversial. Although I want to return to this later and maybe give some tough cases where people do interfere with someone else's right to sex and we maybe think that it's okay. But once we're in this sort of positive rights territory, we then sort of look like we're in the socialism territory, right? In other words, I pay my taxes and in return for taxes, I should be able to get certain goods and services like healthcare. And so who's providing this? It's not private individuals, it's the state, right? So you say, look, no one wants to have sex with me. I'm in despair about it. And so the state owes me sex and there should basically be a number of sex workers who are employed by the state to draw a salary from the state and are able to treat my particular needs as if they were a medical condition. So it's not just that I'm entitled to be masturbated by the state, you must take into account my particular ailment which might be my fetishistic desires, my desire to be beaten or to have you wear a puppy mask and bark while we have sex. All those things, if you take the sort of socialist rights stuff seriously, it's the state that's got to do this stuff and it should be paid for by the taxpayers. And most people are lucky. They can get, they can get sex to their satisfaction without having to rely on the state, like they have to rely on the state for shelter or water or food. But for the needy, they need the government to play a role. So I wonder if you think that's, That's really what you mean by the positive right to sex, that it's done by this external body. The other way you could cash it out is that there's like a charitable duty on all of us. So it might be that no person has a particular right to receive charity, but we all have an obligation to dish it out. So I can't will a world in which no one will ever look after me. So this is what creates this imperfect duty. So at some point, I've got to go out and give charitable aid. And maybe that means. I've got to go and fuck the less fortunate. All those people who are kind of funny looking are a bit like Jason. You just got to take one for the team. Is that the implication of the view? (laughs) Poor Jason.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I think you're also asking two different questions, although there is one, there's one question which that you definitely emphasized more. And the question that you emphasized more is the question of who's going to, is this a state sanctioned thing, basically? Or is it something that individual people take upon themselves like? So and then so that's the main question I think that you asked. The other question that you asked had to do with with what you do with people who have a, so, for example, very specific sexual desires. like I know the common term for them is fetish, which I suppose we can use. So if somebody has can only get his kicks off from doing some something really weird like with an animal or something like that, the dolphin's case comes back to mind, what do we do about, What do we do with people? What do we do with people like that? So, if I may, I'm going to address the second one first, and then go to the bigger one because I think that's that's a little bit more more involved. Someone who defends the right, to, the positive right to sex, could say something along the following lines: Look, we all have consider the analogy with hunger, right, or with appetites for food. Right, we all feel hunger, right. Number one, and number two, we also most of us, at least, have certain tastes in food. So some of us prefer to have tofu steak. Over having just plain rice. Some of us like sweets. Some of us don't like sweets and so on. And so there are very various tastes. So if you keep this datum in mind and then you compare rights to sex, for example, with rights to be fed or with to be given provision, food provisions, right? Somebody can make somebody can argue that look, when somebody has a right to what somebody has a right to food, that means that doesn't mean that they're entitled. To some sort of fancy steak every other week alan sobel makes this point in his essay sexual gifts and sexual duty so i want to give him credit for that so he says that doesn't mean that you have to have the fancied kind of foods right it doesn't mean that you're just basically given gruel every day so you are entitled to something fitting human dignity basically but you're not going to be entitled to fancy meals all the time basically not even once maybe so as far as sexual as far as sexual tastes are concerned, somebody's going to have to say you got to suck it up. No pun intended, in the sense that if you really like to lick feet, for example, right, which is a fetish that a lot of men have apparently, I've been reading some stuff on this, right. If you really like to lick feet, you might have to do without it and just basically get your basic blowjob or or basic kind of lingus As far as this is concerned, now if you have someone, let's randomly call him Jason, who cannot have any. T- I'm kidding. Who cannot have any type of sex unless it involves a zebra, for example, right? Then the... (laughs) Then I think the defender of the right... Don't make me laugh. Then the defender of the right to sex can say something like, we apologize. We just cannot meet that demand because for all sorts of reasons. I mean, it could be the unethical part of getting a zebra involved in this, but it could also just be the logistical part of it, which is that we're just not going to be involved in satisfying that case. And here... That here somebody can, can make the parallel between hunger and between sexual appetites. And somebody can say, unlike hunger, going without sex. Okay. We should stop for a second. Someone can say that unlike hunger, nobody, people can go without sex. So Jason can go without his zebra. But so, so, so because of that, there is room to be able to say some sexual desires are just not going to be met, basically because they are so unique and so far out that we cannot meet them and there would be some sort of justification for it. So I hope that addresses the sexual weird tastes now basically as far as the as far as the as far as the main question so there there is so you mentioned the state supplying this and then either that or individuals having Taking on obligations like Kant's imperfect duties, and I don't I don't remember whether in my draft of the paper I mentioned something about that. Although I definitely thought about it, there is of course a third option, which is that the government can source out, can fund basically little agencies to help with that. So, for instance, the government can make can make sex work legal. They can provide a general kind of fund to individuals and say, here's money for you. You can use it in however your way you want, and if you have sexual needs then feel free to avail yourself of that money to basically hook up with a sex worker or something like that. So there is that third option. But as far as the state is concerned, I mean, there have been some authors who basically wrote things like the state could have a could have programs, state-sponsored programs, that supply what they call sexual doulas, basically. So these will be people who are experienced in sex and whose job is to basically meet the needs of the sexually excluded or the sexually deprived or something like that. This doesn't have to be socialist, Mark, and I know you use the word socialist to basically undermine the answer to this question. It doesn't have to be socialist in as much as states are often involved in providing a lot of social programs for people without having to go to the socialist route. I mean, unless you're like a diehard libertarian in which anything like this is going to count as a form of like anti-libertarian or socialism, We don't need to use the label socialism in order to describe that kind of state of affairs. And even if it is a little bit socialist, that's fine. So yeah, I I think that duties, I think that this question of sexual obligations is of having sexual duties that are not necessarily matched by individual rights, basically, is a very interesting question. Some sort of imperfect duties. There are some difficulties with it. So for example, just to point out a couple one difficulty with it is that we know that with Kantian imperfect duties or imperfect duties in general the agent has a lot of leeway in terms of which which duties to satisfy with whom to satisfy those duties how and also and when and all this that's why they're imperfect duties right so you can easily foresee cases in which those who are most sexually in need right will have their sexual needs left unmet because the people who take upon themselves the idea that they do have sexual obligations will say, you know what, I'm not going to discharge my duty with that person because he's 95 years old and just yucky. I'm going to discharge my duty with this guy who's who has an obnoxious character, but who's also sexually excluded. So I'm going to, I will have sex. So in other words, you can see how they can game the system, so to speak. And it's going to take a very, it's going to take a very saintly saint, a very saintly Kantian saint. So actually, like a Mother Teresa, a Father Teresa of sex, who is actually going to go and discharge of duty. So it's going to be somewhat unreliable. So that talk of rights would sort of give more guarantees to have people's sexual needs met than leaving it up to the. And I think the imperfect duty option has other additional problems with it. But
2: I think that's one of the main ones, basically. Yeah. So firstly, I'm not into zebras. But secondly, I wonder if there's not an important disanalogy between the sex worker that's hired by the state to fulfill this duty versus, let's say, a doctor or a lawyer. So suppose you walk into a doctor's office and the doctor, for whatever reason, doesn't like the look of you. It seems like they'd be doing something wrong to deny you help or a healthcare worker generally would be doing something wrong to deny you that service just because they don't personally like the look of you. And it seems like their consent in the matter isn't really the issue. They have a duty to provide you that service and they need to do so. Same with a lawyer. Mark will be able to give you more details on this, but if he's given a client to represent, he must do so. And it seems like that's different in the sex worker case. So if the sex worker says, I don't like the look of you, it seems they're not obligated to continue. They're not obligated to provide that service. So it seems like there's an important disanalogy there. And I was wondering how you would understand that disanalogy, Mm -hmm. how you would cash it out if you thought that the same is involved in both cases, the right to have the service performed. So it does seem like there's a problem with the framework. That's a very nice question. I think there are some
1: compelling responses to it. I mean, and Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, but don't lawyers sometimes refuse to take certain cases if they think that there is something iffy about the case. I mean, you can say more about that, but from watching Law & Order, I've seen some cases in which lawyers basically just refuse to handle a certain case because they think their client is maybe not being forthcoming with them about a certain things or I don't know for what reasons. But anyway, even if that is the case, even if lawyers are similar to doctors in the sense that they may not refuse a case, you can think of the sex worker in one of two different ways. So one thing I could say is that your disanalogy, Jason, currently rides on The way we conduct business right now with sex workers. In other words, right now, the way sex workers conduct their business is that they are perfectly allowed to say no to a client. In many places, the sex work industry is not regulated, right? So sex workers often feel that they want to say no to a client if they think that they're going to be problematic. Obviously, if they find a client who is terribly repulsive, right? They might also say no to that. They might say, I just can't bring myself to do it, right? So one way to address this is to basically say, look, if we start taking rights to sex seriously, and if we're really going to have a state-sponsored sex worker program, right? then sex workers have to understand that they might have to start thinking of themselves more and more as lawyers and as doctors than as something else. And one thing that could be said in support of this is that a lot of sex workers get accused of all sorts of things. Like one stupid common objection to sex work is that, well, if you have so much sex with so many clients, how can you go back home to your boyfriends and girlfriends and have sex with them? Wouldn't you be all sexed out, basically? And often the response to that is that, we don't view our clients in the same sexual ways that we view our turners, right? Basically, the stock response is that we view it as work, basically, right? So it could be that something along those lines has to be developed, some sort of mental framework has to be developed if such a program were undertaken to say, look, you're going to have to start thinking of yourselves more and more as doctors and lawyers, and you have to really think of this as a job, basically, no more, no less. Now, of course, whether that works or not is not so easy because sexual activity by its nature involves a certain kind of contact that is not involved in the lawyer-client relationship. But on the other hand, doctors often do have to do nasty business with their patients, right? They have to get in there and do certain forms of surgeries, even with even if they're topical surgeries, that can be disgusting. So if somebody tries to basically block my response by saying, well, look, sexual activity has a certain kind of physical contact that you don't find somewhere else, I would argue that lawyers often have to engage in a lot of some weird physical contact with their patients to do this. Mm. On the other hand, we can also think of this sex work as not necessarily that the client wants is going to get, basically. So we could say, like, depending on the condition, depending on all of that, there are certain things that the sex workers will do and certain things they will not do. The third reply, I'll just mention it very quickly, you could have a tiered program. And this is going to sound a little bit weird, but you could have a tiered worker program. You could say the government can say, well, look, for you sex workers in the top tier, right, you are going to be handling the nastiest clients ever, right? And you get the highest pay. So work yourself up emotionally, psychologically, blah, 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 and get ready for this guy. So they're going to be the ones in the trenches, so to speak. And then the second tier and the first tier, they have an easier job. But at least this way, you prepare people in a way psychologically and financially to have to deal with those situations. Of course, the more I say this, I'm hearing in the back of my mind feminist objections to all this, and I hope we get to them at some point because they're important, because a lot of feminists are going to say, well, this basically, when I hear this, I hear women servicing men, basically. So we can talk about that later in the show if you'd like, but I just wanted to register that. So these are some responses I think that somebody could make, somewhat reasonably, I think.
0: So I wonder about... Couple of cases where we think that there's a specific right to sex. So, if you marry someone, whether they have an obligation to have sex with you, and the other one might be that you go to a certain kind of environment. So, you go to a sex club. Does the mere entrance to the sex club entitle you to sex from someone? Because that's sort of a tacit implication of you handing over your fee or going to a brothel. In other words, the assumption is you say, "Well, I've paid for a service. It's contractual. I would have all the rights that any other paying customer would have, which could be quite specific." and you know, those things should be met. In the marriage case, I wonder about a couple of variants. The one might be your partner says, I no longer wanna have sex with you and I will never have sex with you. And I don't think you're entitled to have sex with anyone else either. Now we get to the negative interference case that we talked about earlier, where basically someone has said, I'm going to deny you the right to have sex. I'm not gonna provide it and I'm gonna stop you from having it from anyone else. And it might be that ending the marriage is worse in this scenario. In other words, you've got children to look after, you're financially beholden to this person. Could you claim, in other words, a right to sex, either from the partner or elsewhere? So I know the sex columnist Dan Savage took the view under those conditions, it's your right has been unreasonably interfered with and you would have no obligation to tell your partner that you're having sex elsewhere, that you have a right to sex and therefore you should be allowed to go and have affairs and that their failure to provide it to you is a reason to go and get it elsewhere. I wonder if you share that intuition.
1: Yeah, I do share that intuition to some extent. <laughs> I mean, I think in broad terms partners to a marriage or to a relationship do have if not rights at least expectations that their partners will have sex with them every now and then at least, assuming that the desire for each other is still there and hasn't abated basically that they want to have sex. I think where rights talk comes becomes most important in relationships isn't along the following lines. So it's not the case that To have a right to sex in a relationship means that you have a right to sex on demand at any time you wish of your partner, obviously. But I think the best way to construe rights to sex in a relationship is something along the lines of part of what it means to be in a relationship with someone is that you have some sort of sexual access to that other person with their consent. And that if, as you said, the other person withholds sex all the time and even declares that they're withholding sex and they're never going to have sex, A certain form of contractual obligation, I think, has been violated, basically. And so, although the other partner might say, I forbid you to have sex outside the relationship, that forbidding will have no moral standing. In other words, if the partner in the relationship refuses to have sex with the other person, then they are not on any grounds to to morally demand of the other person that they not seek sexual relationships outside the relationship. I actually, knew a friend of mine who divorced his partner, because his partner didn't want to have sex with him anymore, basically. And so he said, either you allow me to have sex outside the relationship or we end the relationship, basically. And she agreed to ending the relationship because he didn't want to cheat on her, basically. So I think in that case, the talk to right to sex makes sense if it's construed broadly enough as some sort of general right that we have when we are in a relationship. The difficulty with this, of course, is that you will have those cases in which the partner doesn't declare anything that they're not going to have sex with the other person anymore, but just simply refuses to have sex. They always have a headache or something like that. But in substance, that kind of case is also along the same lines as if it were the partner who did declare it in the sense that after a certain time, the other partner, the one who is not getting the sex but wants it, might be on reasonable grounds to say, look, I'm going to have to find to try to have fine sex elsewhere, basically. I mean, the really ideal situation would be for the partner to say to their partner, look, I don't want to have sex with you anymore and I'm never going to have sex with you anymore. But I understand how important sex is. So you have my full permission to seek sex somewhere else, but I just don't want to know about it or whatever. That those details can be worked out later. So I do think that makes sense. Yes. To go back to the sex club, but I, hopefully this addresses somewhat the question. To go back to the sex club and to the brothel, I think with the sex club, what you pay for is not really to have sex with someone. What you pay for is the entrance fee to enter a club in which sex occurs and in which you might have sex with someone. So I don't think the paying the fee does entitle you to have sex at all. And that's usually understood by the parties who go to those places and who run those places. Brothels are a little bit different because there is an expectation that you will hook up with a sex worker at some point. Usually if things are running properly, the what is to happen between the person and the sex worker will be more or less spelled out in advance, basically, so that the sex worker can know what to expect. Um, in which case, so if the sex worker is led to expect something, and it turns out that the client has a major fetish that she's not ready for yet, for example, I think it's completely within her rights to say no. And I think this is the kind of discourse that we already accept as far as these kind of transactions are concerned.
2: Maybe there's an important distinction between the right to have sex and whether it's wrong for a particular person to deny someone sex in a particular situation. So I'm trying to think of an example where the two come apart. So one possible example would be where there's two spouses and one asks the other for sex and the asked partner denies sex not because they don't want to, not because there's a lack of attraction, not because of any problem in their sexual relationship, but just because they want something else. They're being manipulative and they deny sex because of, let's say there was a fight about where the Oscar puts his toothbrush away and says, I'm not going to have sex with you because you didn't put your toothbrush away and that's it. So There's no sex tonight. But there's sexual desire on both sides and it's purely manipulative or vengeful. It seems like in that case, the partner who's asking for sex doesn't have the right to sex, but the person who's denying it might be doing something wrong. And... I wonder if that's not the softer way of asking the question, because if you ask the question, do people have a right to sex? The right to sex is a very strong claim. It's It involves a lot of consequences, including overriding other people's desire not to have sex, but asking the question whether it's wrong to provide sex or not to provide sex rather in certain circumstances, that, that seems softer and maybe more plausible.
1: Yeah, so I think you're right. That does seem softer, obviously, right? But in order for you to make the argument that talk of wronging someone by denying sex should replace talk of rights to sex, in order for that to follow, you have to show on independent grounds that right to sex is just off the philosophical table, basically. Otherwise, you could have it both ways. And in other words, if there are good arguments for the right to sex, somebody could say, well, look, there is such a thing as right to sex. And there are also cases in which it is wrong for someone to deny somebody sex, even though that other person doesn't in that case have a right to sex. And I think that the case that you gave is a very interesting case, Jason, because if you think of parallel cases to it that don't involve sexual interactions, our intuitions would be, say, would be to say that it was wrong to deny that person something. So, for example, if somebody owes me money, right? And says to me, I'm not gonna give you your money because I don't like the way you are walking, you swish your hips too much, right? Then that person is wrong to deny me my money. So there are certain cases in which that, that would kind of love this in terms of sex, like the one that you gave, that it would be completely, I think, is reasonable to say that the person has the right. Other cases would involve something like I know that the climate today is such that people will find those cases abhorrent, but part of me wants to say that. Look, if I begin, maybe I shouldn't, but anyway, part of me wants to say that if I begin to, if I begin a sexual activity with someone, right, under which circumstances am I allowed to end it midway or halfway or quarterway, right? There is a certain discourse out there that basically says you are entitled to end it whenever you want, under any circumstances, etc., etc. And I understand why, but I understand why, because... A lot of this discourse comes from feminist concerns about women being in sexually and sexual activities with other men and somehow the men's desires or whatever escalating to a point that somehow the woman didn't agree to, etc. So I understand where the sentiment is coming from. But I also want to say that there might be cases in which it is still wrong to, to do this. If, for example, some idea popped in your head and you're like, oh, shit, I forgot to call someone. I'm going to go and do it now. Basically, I'm going to go and call that person. I think it would be wrong. to to stop the sex midway in this respect, even if the other person doesn't have a right for the sex to continue, basically.
2: Yeah, and we can refine the case so that there's no woman involved, right? So it's two gay men. So we take the feminist concerns out of the equation, just to put those concerns aside. It does seem like on a whim, let's say just to toy with your feelings, a quarter of the way through the sex, I decide, even though I have pure attraction, I want to continue, you've done nothing wrong, I still am in the mood, but I have a slightly stronger desire to toy with your feelings, and I decide not to continue. It seems like I'm doing something wrong. Now, of course, I'm not saying that is the case. I'm not saying that's what people are doing. But I'm just saying, if that were the case, it seems like, in support of what you're saying, I would be doing something wrong.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think. Then, I think. What's. I, I think when you bring in when you bring in vicious motives into the picture. I mean, the case that I gave. Was just a case of fickleness, where somebody remembered that they needed to call someone and decided to stop the sex act. When you bring cases in which the person has a has a has an active vicious motive, where you know you deliberately want to leave that person sexually frustrated, or you deliberately want to toy with that person's emotions, especially if the sexual act was not just sexual but also involved emotional stuff to going along with it, then yeah, I think the case is becoming even stronger than that. So absolutely, yeah. But you see my earlier point about the logic between maintaining that discourse on the right to sex on the one hand, while also agreeing that there could be the cases that you're mentioning, Jason. So I think to have the latter take the place of the former, we're going to need an independent argument for the former. And you flirted with one, which you can take up if you want, but yeah, I'll stop there.
0: So I want to think about a couple of cases where we have third parties interfering with someone's alleged right to sex. So the one might be the overly protective father who says to his daughter, who's, let's say, over the age of 18, you're allowed to have sex because you still live under my roof. The other one might be that you have a Down syndrome person who, let's say, is at an institution. An institution takes a policy. No one who has Downs is entitled to have sex, and they will actively stop it. And the third might be someone who's been punished for a crime they committed, so they're incarcerated. And the warden says there are no conjugal rights here you have lost your right to have sex because of uh, what you did so now we're all in negative rights territory whether you think that those violations are are true violations or whether uh, nothing wrong has occurred
1: yeah these are nice cases i mean i it would depend on the it will depend obviously on the case in question so for example the somebody can say that a criminal who was who was put in jail criminals i mean i'm not necessarily endorsing this but the argument would go that criminals When they commit a crime, and depending on how serious the crime it is that they commit, forfeit all sorts of rights. So, for example, when they're sent to prison, they forfeit the right to their liberty, to their physical liberty, right? They forfeit the right to see their friends as frequently as they want to, and so on and so forth. So I can see someone making the argument that certain kinds of crimes... So suppose, for example, you have a rapist or a serial rapist, for instance. You could see a punishment fitting this crime by basically saying that you have forfeited your right to sex, basically. So in that kind of case, when the warden or the judge or whatever, say, denies that person conjugal visits or denies the person sex, somebody can make the case that this is actually, it is not violating the right because the person has sort of forfeited the rights to have these things. And even if the person happens to have a very strong libido, right, somebody can say that that the punishment is even more fitting in this case because it sounds a little bit vengeful, but somebody can say that the punishment is even more fitting is precisely because the person has a strong libido, we are basically denying him right because... Had it not been for that libido, he wouldn't have went on this rape spree, basically, and so he has forked it all right. So that's that. That could be one way to handle that case. Of course, there are cases of prisoners that are allowed to have conjugal visits, right, by their spouses, and it's interesting to think of those cases. I mean, I'm not a legal scholar, so I don't know why those why certain prisoners or whether all prisoners are allowed conjugal visits. But the reasoning could go that could go that to the to could be something along the lines that sexual interests and sexual activity and sexual pleasure are important areas of our lives. So just as we wouldn't deprive prisoners from food and proper shelter, at least decent shelter, right? We're not going to deprive them from a sexual life, especially if they are married. So that that goes to enhance the argument for the right to sex by enhancing one of its main premises, which is that the sexual areas of our lives are those spheres that rights should protect, basically. So that would be interesting. But that's an interesting thing to think about in terms of the conjugal visits. Are all prisoners allowed conjugal visits if they're married? Do you know? I mean, of course, that will depend from one state to another, from one legal system to another. So we don't have to answer that question. But it is also interesting to think whether conjugal visits should be allowed only to those who are married, in which case, why would marriage bestow upon someone certain sexual rights but not on non-married people i can see the reasoning for that but anyway that's all different so with the down syndrome thing there is a philosopher who writes on she's actually very interesting i don't think her arguments are compelling but she has published a couple of essays on the idea of people who are mentally, for some reason or other, unable to consent to sexual activity. Because consent to sex is like one of the most important areas in philosophy of sex. Obviously, we consider consent to be crucial. So so she has a couple of essays about about people who are in mental institutions, who are suffering, for, say, from Alzheimer's or from dementia, especially, specifically dementia. And so who are unable to consent. And she suggests that the criterion in their cases should not be consent as much as it should be their well-being so basically her argument is that with consent shouldn't be as pronounced in cases like this but the well-being of the person should be more pronounced so if the doctors or the practitioners the family members and so on and so forth know the patient quite well right and they can tell by certain signs that the patient would not be opposed to having sex or if the patient even initiates no matter how, how much we think that the patient is not doing this in a fully aware manner she thinks that the person that the patient should be allowed to have sex. And of course, that argument seems to assume, if not a right to sex, at least it seems to assume the idea that sexual activity and pleasure is quite important to people so that we have to allow people who are unable to make the kind of, unable to consent in the ways that we consider to be consent to be viable, we have to allow them to give them room. So I think someone can respond to that kind of case that an institution that prohibits sexual activity in that institution, on the face of it, such a prohibition would seem to be a violation of the patient's rights to sex, basically. So that would be one way to go. The overly protective father, I think that's just that is a violation of the right to sex. I mean, if that if by if by the if by the very way the case was set up, if the daughter is over 18 years old, so she's of legal age. I think the father being overly protective is just a violation of her rights to have sex and of course it's not just a violation of her positive it seems it's a violation of her to liberty basically to her ability to go out and date people and have sex with them i mean the daughter is not demanding anything special in this respect she's just basically asking to be left alone i suppose so it's a violation not just a positive but more serious
2: negative so throughout this discussion i think at the base of this idea of the right to sex is that sex is a good In other words, it's good for your well-being, it's pleasurable, and also good for other people's well-being, assuming there's a second party involved. Given that, do you think it is wrong to choose a life of celibacy, both because you are depriving yourself of these goods and depriving others, perhaps many others, if you would have lived a life that wasn't necessarily monogamous, but involved many partners? And then a corollary of that question, is it wrong to be monogamous? So, I actually do hold the view that it's wrong to be monogamous because you're depriving a lot of other potential partners of that good. So, I mean, that's a nice question. Are you asking this question
1: while cognizant of the distinction between, I mean, that question sounds so condescending and I don't mean it that way, but I mean, are you asking that question while being cognizant of the distinction between wrong and bad, basically? Because I can see someone saying, someone who makes the choice to be celibate might be making a bad choice because they are depriving themselves of a lot of sexual pleasure, and we know sexual pleasure is a somewhat unique pleasure, and so on and so forth. But to say that it's the wrong, it's a, and you can say it's the wrong choice, if by that you mean it's just a bad choice, right? We often use that language. We say, oh, that's the wrong choice to make, meaning that's a bad choice to make. But if you're using wrong in a stronger sense, that somehow you have wronged yourself, that seems to be implausible to me. It seems to be much more plausible to say that the person might have, might have done, it might have made a bad choice. And even in that case, we have to assume, and like you said, I think an overall ceteris paribus clause, right? Everything else equal. Because if everything is not equal, then I can see somebody making the right choice. Again, meaning good choice. If, for example, they decide to become celibate because they want to dedicate themselves to, de- to the worship of God, or they want to dedicate themselves to their hobbies, or whatever for or whatever. So they, it could be that they have considered it. And they have come to that decision. Now they could have reasoned about it mistakenly. You can accuse them. You can say that choice was irrational, right? Even though you, you, so you can say something like it's not a, it's not a, it's not a bad choice in the sense that it is not harmful to you. But you can also say that it is an irrational choice because you could have thought about it in this way, where you could have had your cake and eat it at the same time. Now, as far as others are concerned, I mean, I don't it's funny because when you think depriving others i imagine this like god-like creature right like this this who's the like this apollo who's this famous good-looking god some sort of gorgeous good-looking god that everybody just can have sex with him or her right and so when that person refuses to have sex with the other people there's some sort of serious deprivation going on and so therefore maybe some serious wrong going on But usually that's not the case. So if I, despite the fact that I'm so fucking hot and gorgeous, I decide to refuse sex with anybody, right? Then you can say, Raja, look, come on, you're depriving some people who really want to have sex with you. But then I can say, first of all, the deprivation is surely not that deep that I've actually wronged them. And if the deprivation is not that deep, then, you know, they don't have a right against me that they have sex with me, basically. Even if they have rights to sex in general, it doesn't follow that they have a right against me. So by not having sex with them, I haven't wronged them in that sense.
2: Yeah, I think if you adopt the rights framework, then the wrong, bad distinction is very important. But because I'm a utilitarian, I don't want to adopt that framework. So the utilitarian says, well, weigh up these two lives. So weigh up the life of the person who has multiple sexual partners throughout their life. And they don't necessarily need to be an Adonis, right? So they don't have to be an exceptionally good lover. They could just be an average lover and that person still will provide a lot of pleasure to those people overall over the course of a lifetime versus that person choosing to be celibate and just doesn't do so. Um, It does seem like there's a whole lot of net pleasure lost in the celibate case and there something bad has happened or at least the absence of good things have happened and that equates for the utilitarian to an impermissible action or a wrong choice of becoming celibate. But I'm not saying that those individuals that the celibate person doesn't have sex with have a right to sex with him or her. I'm just saying that something bad has happened because pleasure hasn't occurred in those cases. All right, but you do want to say that because something bad has happened as a good utilitarian, you do want to link that to the wrongness of the action, correct? If- yes, because a utilitarian defines right action in terms of utility, and utility involves good or bad events. So, so one correction, I did mean Adonis, right? And Adonis was
1: not Greek. Adonis was Lebanese. I would like the public to know this. Those goddamn Greeks, they have to take credit for everything. No, Adonis was Lebanese. And as we all know, Lebanese are very good-looking people. Anyway, with that nugget aside, if you want to take the crass route to this, aka the utilitarian route, I'm kidding, it's not that crass. So, if you want to take the utilitarian route, then obviously... You're right. So you somebody can say some bad has occurred, there has been some people have been deprived of that pleasure, and that counts towards the wrongness of the action, right? But then of course you have to weigh in the so for example, if I'm the person in question who decides to lead a celibate life, right? We also have to, as we all know, the utilitarian calculus has to apply to everyone, and everyone weighs somewhat equally in that calculus, right? So you have to factor me into the case, right? Now, somebody can say, well, Raja, it's just you versus all those hundreds of people who could have benefited from all the wonderful sex they would have had with you, which might be true. So if you're going by individual numbers, you'd have to count it this way. But it could be the case also that having sex with other people, maybe I'm one of those people who find sex just an absolutely disgusting endeavor, right? I mean, there are people like this. They find any bodily contact to be Absolutely disgusting, right? So maybe I'm one of those people. So that for every unit of pleasure that I give to someone else, I receive hundred units of pain, right? So it could be that that calculus will turn out to be actually in my favor to be celibate, as opposed to being in their favor to be celibate. But if we are going to go, if we are going to go about it, the utilitarian rule and the act utilitarian rule, not the rule utilitarian rule, you're right. Everything will have to depend on the where the calculus falls, basically on the net benefits and the net costs. In which case, that's fine. But in which case it will be met with the usual objections to utilitarianism the role of the agent and the projects that the agent has blah, blah blah those have to be set aside and so i do not mean you don't need me to rehearse this nor does your audience so so yeah i agree with you but i think it just it faces the usual severe problems and that's only when we take i think act utilitarianism i think your rule utilitarianism might have some other interesting things to say about this basically so for example rule utilitarianism might say well we have to adopt a rule that says basically that people should have a choice about when and how frequently and with whom to have sex because only having this rule is going to ultimately yield the net amount of benefits for people, basically. So
2: I think a rule utilitarian would have a different take on this. Maybe there's two ways of supporting the arguments that don't rely on sort of a crass act utilitarianism. So the one would be that there's a certain type of pleasure associated with sex that you're not going to get in other ways. And so you're both depriving yourself and others of this type of pleasure. And then a second argument would be that there's other goods or perfections that arise from sex beyond pleasure. So there's intimacy, there's a sense of connection, there's a knowing of other partners, there's a physical closeness, there's touch. Those are perfections which are separate from the utility involved or the pleasure involved, and those would be lost in a life of celibacy. Now that's not to say that other goods aren't obtained in a life of celibacy, but just to say there is a loss. No, I mean, you're right. But
1: let me put it this way, I agree with you. I think that sexual pleasure is a type of pleasure, obviously. So if I decide to lead a celibate life, I'm going to deprive myself of that type of pleasure. I'm not going to deprive others from that type of pleasure because obviously they can have sex with people other than me and so they can experience that type of pleasure. So I'm not depriving them of that type of pleasure. I'm only depriving myself. So you're right about this. However, what I would like to point out is that I don't necessarily see the bridge to utilitarianism. In other words, I don't have to be utilitarian to make that claim because somebody can say, look, Raja, if you decide to lead a celibate life, you are depriving yourself of a certain type of pleasure that you're never going to experience anywhere else, basically. And not in your stamp collecting, not in your swimming, not in anything. And I don't have to be utilitarian to say that. And I think the connection to utilitarianism is going to have to come in through the wrongness objection. That it's not only that I'm depriving myself of something and so therefore making a bad choice about my life, but the link to utilitarianism or to consequentialism in general has to come through the wrongness. Otherwise, why even bring utilitarianism up? But then once you bring in the wrongness, then we were back to the earlier question in which I said, it will ultimately depend on where the chips fall, the consequences of the, utilitarian, the utility chips, where they will fall. And then, of course, then you have the rule utilitarian. So we're back to that.
0: And So I wonder if there's a good social justice argument for certain groups having a right to sex. So there might be particular groups who have had a lot less sex over time. You started off the show by giving us a litany of people that have been described as undesirable for various reasons. And so I wonder if there becomes an affirmative action obligation on everyone else. to say when you're picking a sexual partner, you should give these guys preference. So instead of having a no fat, no fems rule, you gotta go like it's anorexics and uh, the morbidly obese. They get to jump the queue before the gorgeous Adonis types. Do you think that those groups get some special rights because of their prior injustices that they've been dealt in the unjust distribution of sex that has come their way.
1: John Danaher, who's written a couple of pieces on the right to sex, whose name I should also mention, does seem to justify rights to sex on that sort of social justice argument. Although I have to say he's a little bit vague about this right so but he does flirt with the idea where he basically says perhaps some people are sexually excluded because of certain justice issues so for example if it turns out that it was a matter of injustice that for example people who are really obese or really skinny if it turns out that this is a matter of injustice that they were excluded from sex then they seem to be owed some sort of reparation so so some sort of corrective measures so that would be definitely one way to justify a right to sex because one of the things that I didn't, get to, I didn't get to mention so far is that it's one thing to say that there is a right to sex, obviously, and it's another to try to justify the right to sex. Like, What are the grounds for the right to sex? And one justification for the right to sex is precisely the social justice one, which is that society somehow owes some sort of rectification or reparation for people who have been unjustly excluded from sex through no fault of their own, basically. So here you make a distinction between the obnoxious character. So ideally, the obnoxious person can do certain things to improve their character. So they are somewhat culpable, right? Whereas people who are, say, for example, who have been socially excluded through no fault of their own would be owed some sort of revenue. Now, what's interesting about this kind of justification is that it also has links to the question of who has the right to sex, right? So. If you start from an argument whose premise is that sex is basically needed for a decent life, right, and you stop there, then everyone in principle will have the right to sex. And so then it becomes a question of who's able to make that claim, and then people will have to make the case that on, on their own, they're unable to satisfy those sexual needs, so they need help. The interesting thing about the social justice argument is that it basically narrows down the scope of who has the right to the sex. So... It's not just any person, basically, who somehow is sexually excluded. It's only going to be those people who have been sexually excluded because of unjust social mechanisms, basically. So that would be the argument to make. I'm not sure what to think about that argument because it has to be basically a conditional claim because we have to make sure that this, I mean, there are a lot of movements now like the fat movement and basically people who basically claim that they have been sexually excluded from because of social injustice. And so one question is going to be whether social injustice is really the cause of this or whether we have some sort of evolutionary mechanisms that wire us in such a way to find people within a certain range to be physically desirable. So for example, I haven't yet heard of anyone, not that you can't make the argument, but I haven't heard from anyone yet who comes and say, who comes and says old people have are socially treated unjustly because nobody sexually desires them. And I don't know why people don't say that. But I suppose that the reason why people don't say that is because we understand that the old are just not sexually desired, except in niche markets, basically, like granny porn and whatnot, which is not a which is not a big percentage, it seems. Now, somebody can argue, look, evolutionary mechanisms are just facts. They don't tell us what we ought to do. So somebody can say, we do owe it to the people who have been excluded, but even by evolutionary mechanisms, we do owe them something. But then the argument is no longer a social justice argument, I think, because issues of social justice and justice are premised on social practices that have their roots in injustice, really, as opposed to like biological mechanisms
2: that are operating in us. So it can get pretty complicated, but also interesting at the same time. So here's an objection to the social justice argument. So suppose I'm part of the sexually marginalized group. Suppose I'm part of the group of very obese people who is generally perceived by society not to be attractive. And because of that, I get less or no sex. Who owes me the sex? Is it people who are not part of my group? I'm assuming so in order for that, for social justice to occur. But then I would need to be attracted to that person who is a thin person, who is my oppressor. And in order for that sex to be the kind of thing that would be pleasurable, so I'd have to find that person attractive. But because they're my oppressor, presumably, the fact that they're a member of that group would make them unattractive to me. So there's this weird contradiction involved. And I wonder whether the social justice could ever go through because of that. I mean, I think your question
1: very interesting, but I also think it makes a lot of assumptions. I mean, one assumption it makes is that we can never be attracted to our oppressors. But that's just not true. I think it's just plainly false. We are attracted to our oppressors in many ways. And especially, I mean, human psychology is so complicated and screwed up that if we can be attracted to slugs, we're going to be attracted to our oppressors, basically. So, but the other thing I think that I would caution against is that if I'm a very obese person and I see a skinny person, I need not think of the skinny person as my oppressor either. Because for all I know, the skinny person could be someone who is all up into social justice. Um, the skinny person might actually prefer people who are somewhat obese than to average size or skinny people, basically. So I'm not entitled to make that assumption. So yeah, you also said who owes me the sex, right? Now, if we go by the discourse of the positive right to sex, and if we say that this is going to be some sort of a state-sponsored program, then basically who, there's no specific assigned individual who's going to owe you the sex. It's going to be whoever is a member of that sex worker or sex doula's group. That has been selected by the government and is being paid handsomely to do this. So the idea isn't that you have to have sex by a member of the oppressor do, right? The idea is just that you're entitled to sex that you have been deprived of for all these years because of social justice. Now, one thing that is interesting about social justice arguments is that they have to be careful how they word themselves also, because, for example, if you remember our first very first interview was about racial preferences, right? She remember? Right. So somebody could argue, for instance, I could, for example, argue that as an Arab person, I don't find many white people in the United States who desire, right? But that doesn't mean I'm sexually excluded because I could be having a shit ton of sex with Asians, with blacks, with other Arabs. So sexual exclusion doesn't necessarily doesn't mean that a person is not sexually excluded just because they don't have sex with particular members of society, right? Sexual exclusion is just sexual exclusion, period. Although that can get complicated pretty quickly, but we can just leave it at that. So for social justice arguments to establish themselves, they cannot just be the claims that somebody is not sexually desired by members of a particular group. It has to be that those people are not desired in general by by society. So I just added this at the end as a cautionary note on how such arguments have to be developed.
2: Yeah, I just want one quick follow-up on that, which is that it seems like if I'm going to demand sex from someone of the thin group, it's someone quite member of the thin group that I'm going to demand it. So it's, in other words, I'm not just demanding sex from someone who is thin, I've got to demand it from someone who is thin and my oppressor, and that's why I want it from them, which could affect my desiring of them. But this, of course, presupposes that your response that the state would provide the service doesn't go through. It's more of an affirmative action kind of system. So you've got these two ways of redressing injustice. You've got many ways, but two under consideration here. So the one would be that the state steps in and provides extra goods to a wronged group. The second way is that a group that has previously wronged that group in the past has to provide those goods, not the state. And it's that model that I was really referring to. But the state model would avoid the subjection, as you say.
1: Yeah, no, I see. I understand. I just think that when it comes to social justice arguments, it's one thing to make the case that certain groups are owed some sort of reparation, right? But it's a completely different thing to basically insist on certain ways that those reparations have to be delivered or who is to deliver them. At some point, the demands might be seen more as vengeful than anything else. Like, but somebody can say, well, I don't just want to be repaired for that i want this person to do it right and at some point we're going to balk at that and say look it might not have been this person's fault even though he was or they were a beneficiary of the system that also oppressed you we're just going to have to find a way to make sure that you are compensated for what happened in the most
0: just of ways basically